And it's pretty special when you're sitting down there with an 18 year old kid. You know, we were paying six times the average national income. Um, pop, um, unemployment at the time was about 50% for youth unemployment. Um, English speaking in the Western Cape region. But yeah, sitting next to an 18 year old kid who says that he's going to be here and he's going to be able to buy his mum her first house. Welcome to Startup West, the podcast about startups who have been there and done it or are right here and doing it in sunny Western Australia. My name's Charlie Gunningham, and my usual co-host, Danelle Cross, cannot be here today as she's just started a new role as Director of Discovery at St Hilda's, and I know, we all know, she will do great things there. On this episode, we talk with someone who really needs no introduction, Michael Malone, founder and CEO of IINet. One of the few IT or tech businesses that have grown to a billion dollars plus in valuation from startup here in Perth over a 20 years period. Michael is over east at the moment, cannot get into WA, so we spoke over Zoom. Hi, Michael, and welcome to Startup West. Fantastic to have you here. Good day, Charlie. Except I think you're not here. You're at a WeWork in Queensland. Is that right? Yes, waiting to get home. <laughs> okay, good. So while we got you, um, I suppose I'd like to know, since iNet was sold, and I know you'd left your role as CEO about a year before that, can you tell us what you ended up going on to do and sort of what keeps you busy now? I know you've been on a few boards and maybe made some investments and other things. Yeah, at the time, I guess I thought I'd find another startup idea and be running with that and hopefully being getting that same rush again that comes to being part of a fast-growing startup um, right. or even taking on a full-time role as a paid CEO because uh, I really did enjoy the role. But um, in, in reality, I got involved in a number of directorships. I was invited to join a number of big companies like, like Seven West Media and NBN Co, um, Speedcast and others. And uh, that, that's been really interesting because you know, every one of them has different different things going wrong, different things going right, different areas to be able to, to get excited about each month. So it gives a huge amount of variety. So what people call a portfolio career, you sit on a variety of boards. Yeah. And at the other end, as you know, as you know I still try and look at startup investment opportunities and right. um, you know, invest either directly into some startups, like I got into Airtask quite early on, um, and or or in through funds like, like um, Jade or Geolix or Elliston, um, 1013 up here in Brisbane and so on. Okay. So um, anything you're really interested in, like is it AI or is it more the founders you look at or interesting technology piques your interest? Uh, no doubt you've got a lot of people approaching you and they'd love to have you involved, either money and or on boards or in some some respect. What what sort of interesting you? Well, it, it, I guess it's very hard to value any of these businesses when you know a lot of them are just you know, an idea, really, yeah. at this point, even without a viable product to start with. Um, traditionally, I like mass market consumer, I mean, not surprisingly. Right. Um, so you know, dealing with stuff that my mum and dad would want to buy at home is my ideal target. Um, you know, infrastructure like telecommunications is fascinating um, because, you know, that, but it's it's also fairly traditional. And the valuations these days on those has you know, gone up hugely. I mean, a lot of telcos now are trading at 10 times revenue. So right. I guess I'm, I'm quite wide, but yes, it's technology. is you know, technology and how we get it into households is, is the main thing. Right. And so what's a typical day for Michael Malone? What are you, what are you doing? You, you, you're obviously a bit restrictive with COVID. Be able to, you can't, we were initially going to be meeting today in Perth and you're in Brisbane. So you sort of got to get around the place and see these things or? Well, used to. So a lot of the time yeah. I was travelling. I mean, even board roles. You know, I do, you know, typically about half my time would be involved either directly into a board meeting or into um, into committee meetings, which occur throughout the month. 
And, yeah. and there's an enormous amount of reading for those. I mean, the, the requirements on directors, the liabilities has gone up hugely. A typical board pack is 500 plus pages. Wow. Um, and okay. you know, in addition to that, then you've got committees like um, you know audit and risk or, or remuneration or you know there's other things in there. So that those are you know, again gives you a broad range of interesting areas that you've got to keep up to date with. And you're yeah. seeing from things like Crown, you know, missing one line in a board pack can end up having dramatic repercussions further down the track. So that the board draws kind of anchor everything. And then after that, it is much more around, well, what's interesting that's out there or comes across my desk or that I wake up one morning saying, hey, I wonder if. Right. And, um, yeah, but, you know, it's just looking for that next opportunity and they're, they're hard to spot. It's, it's yes. often a matter of diving into a heap of them, like, like anything in creative areas, dive into a heap of them and just see which ones actually end up going somewhere. Can you share how many active investments you've got out there at the moment? I mean, the last time I spoke, I think you said you had 16 or 17. Um, so I've exited a few, but yes, right. it's still bubbling away at about that amount. So I have started probably more to go through other funds. I mentioned before 1013 here in Brisbane is Steve Baxter's um, investment vehicle. Right. And they'll look at 1,000 per year um, and they'll end up coming in with shortlisted ones. So if I get some across my desk that are really interesting and seem relevant to them, I might palm it across to them and let them do the due diligence since they've got the staff right. on it. But then 1013 will also allow for its unit holders to co-invest. So if they do see one that's interesting and they're going to put in a million dollars into it, then they'd send it back out to their key investors and just say, look, are you interested in doubling down on that one as well? So I'd be indirectly as well as directly then into a company like that. So Australian or any any country, you're not, in, you're not really worried? I, I have got some large company investments overseas, but no, all, all for startups. I, I want them in a market I understand and where the people are based, where we can meet up with them if need be. Don't so yeah, Australian founders based here, hopefully with a product that can be seen and consumed domestically. Right. But, but oh, so an Australian market as well, not necessarily a global market you're looking for. Well, no, the global market's great, but we want to be able to see that the product is in the hands of Australian users. Otherwise, you know, you're kind of guessing what are the market dynamics. If they're only selling enterprise products into Scandinavia, then it's right. very hard to know if that's, if do I understand that product? Um, you know, what is the market like across there? I have no experience in that market. Then we're just rolling the dice then. Yes. So I want to take you back to the formation of Ironet, for which, of course, you're very well known. And you were the personification of the brand. Um, and I think the first time I saw you speak and became aware of you in the late 90s in Perth and into the 2000s, you were certainly the spokesperson for, you know, internet ISPs. And you seem to be hoovering up all the other ISPs around, growing by acquisition and obviously onto the stock market. But I want to take right at the very beginning. I think you were had just graduated from university. Is that right? That was the story as, as why Ionet got going? Yeah, that's correct. I was a, a lowly maths teacher. My degree was in pure pure maths and um, and I did a teaching degree as well. And yeah, then leaving university, internet access was only available in on Arnet in so in the academic networks. And um, so there was no private internet service providers once you left university. And so that was the only driver. I was already an addict. And it was a matter right. of how can I get access for myself. And there was a lot of other students graduating the same time as me that were in the same boat. So I knew this I had a few other. Um, early customers. 90s? 91, 90, 91? 93. 93. So you were a maths teacher? I, I guess I did spend very little time in a classroom, but um, but yeah, I was uh, graduated as a maths teacher and did some right. uh, relief working, you know, along with putting up fences in my first year at INET to try and keep the lights on. 
because your dad is a fence contractor, is that right? Had his own business. He, he was, yeah. He's, he's retired now, but, but yes, he was putting up fences. But this is before browsers, really. So what you'd seen in the internet that has sparked your interest in what must have been the late 80s, early 90s, this is, this is before um, the sort of consumerization of, of the internet and World Wide Web and browsers and stuff. It was all command line, you're right. So we were working on Unix systems at, at university and yeah, Linux had only just started off. It was Linux wasn't available as a distribution at the time. So you needed to know your way around Unix to be able to do anything. There was right. a browser called Mosaic, but it wasn't available on, it was only available on Macintosh and um, and Unix X windows. So for, for mass market, so, um, you know, Microsoft Windows, um, the first yeah. browser that was released was in October 94, which was Netscape. Yeah. So it was, um, yeah, so in the early days, but, you know, we were still, you could do, use things like Gopher and, um, you know, there was, there was email from the command line. Um, there was still right. a lot of ways to be able to work your way around the internet. I was probably into LP MUDs, which probably no one remembers now, but it was an online game, text-based only. Right. And um, but you could still connect off to people all around the world and chat with them. Right. So there were some chat rooms. There was a little bit of email. There was some gaming in its elementary text-based form. There was IRC, which I'm sure you'd remember. And there, there was, you know, talk, for instance, one-to-one or one-to-small one -one groups. So there was lots of ways to be able to connect with other people if you already knew them. Right. Um, and there was the Usenet news groups, which was, you know, ways for discussion, what we would now look at as discussion forums, but they were all text-based. And so what had piqued your interest in all that? What grabbed your attention and why you wanted to continue to have access to it after you graduated? But like like the modern day, I met people online and kept in right. touch with them online. And, um, you know, so, and, you know, we shared a lot of common interests. And even if you had small areas, of, like I used to read comic books back then, and so there was a release of a very what became a very famous series called Watchmen. And every month that that came out, we were on the forums discussing it as the way people did with Game of Thrones, I suppose, in more modern times. Right. And so, yeah, niche groups could connect with a small number of people on the planet and and be able to find other people that were like minded. And yeah, there was research so things like the Louvre was online already back in the early nineties. Um, but yeah, so there were still lots of research facilities around that were, were were connected, even though it was in a very basic form. Yeah. So um, I think I've heard you say that your first business plan was basically if I got, was it 200 or 2,000 people to subscribe, it would pay for itself and I'd then have free internet? Was it no more sophisticated than that? Exactly. I looked at the cost of a connection just for me. So I knew I was graduating and it was $25,000 per year for a connection to Ooh. the US for a 14K wow. connection. And, um, and that was $15,000 setup fee off, off memory as well to get it all up and right. running. That's a lot of money for a maths teacher. Yeah, there's no way. I mean, a maths teacher at the time would have been early, low 30s income. So it was um, yep. there was no possibility of doing it. But, yeah, hence looked at $25 a month. It was seemed pretty consumable, as in that seemed palatable to my friends. Multiply that by 200 and you get to enough money to be able to cover costs. So right. it was no more complicated than that, as in I wanted it for myself. Some of my friends wanted it too. That was the market research. The business plan was 200 times 25 covers costs. That's yep. the, the, the business plan. But in order to get that connection, you needed to stump up twenty five grand, did you, to to get it? We did. I did end up negotiating with them to to cut it down to paying in six monthly blocks. But yes, it was. It was that. Much. I had most of that money saved from putting up fences myself through university. Right. So I had some some cash of my own, and my parents loaned me the rest. They didn't right. know what I was doing, but they were of the view that look, you know, if you if you think this is a good business, we'll back you. And you had a co-founder, or was it yourself? 
No, no, there was another guy from university because I'm I'm technical by community standards, but right. but not by you know tech standards. So you now there was another guy at university who was in second year, Michael O'Reilly, and you know right. he, he was astonishingly talented network engineer. Sounds like another Irish gentleman. His his father was Irish, yes, but right. um, and Michael Michael finished off his he continued on and finished off his degree over the next year or two. And, um, and, you know, whereas I worked full-time in the business, uh, but we were, we were partners in it and I couldn't have got it up without, right. without Michael. Not, and was not it up. always called IINet from the beginning or was there another name? No, no, we've, we've talked about um, where the name came from because what we do remember, no, none of us were drinkers, so this is going to sound like it was drinker's night out, but we were <laughs> there with our, me and Michael with our two partners um, with a whiteboard scribbling up names on it, trying to think of which ones. And we had through and throwing out lots. It was a Friday night. And eventually, IINet was up on the board, and we put a circle around it, and everyone agreed that was the one. And you know, right. I'd love to claim credit for it, as as would any of the other three that were in the room that night. But right. uh, quite honestly, none of us can remember can remember which exactly one came from. So it was, um, but it was in today's in today's wording, I guess would have said it's got you know very high recall. When you see the two eyes, you know, internet, but the two eyes meant it was quite recognisable. And um, so, so yeah, but you know, again, I think it was just a lucky. Lucky acquisition. Yeah, we saw it looked good. We grabbed it without any understanding mm. of the science behind a good name. Yep. And did it actually start in your mother's uh, garage in Padbury, as is the sort of uh, the 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 story? Um, is that where you actually started? And you were you were literally there with all the modems sleeping there, being the customer service guy. So uh, y- yes, um, I was I was living in a rental at the time. Uh, my parents. I own their own home. They'd been in that home since 1978, from when we first when we came over, returned from Ireland. So um, they're still in that house today. I couldn't install phone lines into my rental, so hence, right? You know, just as son number three was moving out of the house, son number one moved back in with my parents, and hence right. they wouldn't let me into the house, but they gave me the garage. And yeah, but by the time we left um, there, which was not. late 1995, um, we had 350 phone lines going into the house. Wow. And okay. um, those phone lines stayed there then until the mid two thousands because it cre- it was um creating a northern suburbs point of presence. So for customers that were in say Yanship or Gidgeyanup, then it was only a local call to be able to make it to go to Padbury, whereas it would have been a long distance call to call Perth. And I think you used to take people on a bus, like new IINet employees, and actually show them the garage as part of the sort of folklore of the company, right into the two thousands. Yeah, yeah, and show them my mum. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, the, the room is still there, as I said. My mum uses it as an office and storeroom now, but essentially if you walked into it today, it looks the way it did back in the early 90s. Right. Um, so there's still all the phone sockets on the wall, all the ISDN termination points. Um, yeah, so, you know, it was, it was lovely. And, I, I mean, it's mm. one of those ones a lot of companies look for a great creation story. And I, I used to cringe a bit for it at first, you know, because it felt like, oh, you know, talking about, oh, we started in a garage, seemed like it was, um, you know, you guys are still cowboys. And then right. over time, I was like, no, you know what? This is a really core part of who we are. We're a small business. And even if we get to become a huge business, we should still act like a small business. Right. And I think we tried to keep right. that as a core part of the culture. Definitely. And how long did it take you to get those 200 customers to get you to break even and pay you for your internet, which is what you wanted all along? It took about a year to get those 200. Um, right. And then Netscape was released. And then uh, in three months, we put on a 1,000 customers. Boom. And right. after that, it was just down to how fast could we buy modems because it was a capital-constrained business, of course. Telstra and Optus were not in the market. Um, there was no large, well-funded carriers. It was an entirely cottage industry. 
And so all of us were down to, you know, the, the way you would, as a customer, the way you assessed an ISP at the time was how many engage signals did you get? That was fundamental. Right. It didn't matter how good your service levels were if you couldn't get through. So um, we just had to keep on adding modems as fast as customers were coming in the door. And so you were actually a math teacher to start with. And then when did you quit that? And you go, right, this is actually going to be a job for me, this IINet thing. Probably that end of 94. Um, right. I, I still did some fencing work um, over the next few years. But after that, it wasn't to earn money. It was just you know, to go out with the family and to do something physical. But it was, um, no, it was that that first year and a half probably it was I needed money coming in because um, there yep. was not, I knew it wasn't paying for its own costs. And um, then after that, it was just trying to keep up. And it was 24-7. I literally slept, next, uh, slept on a bed next to the phone. We did 24 by 7 support by if it rang at 2 o'clock in the morning, I would wake up. So I wouldn't find it. This is Michael. I'd take Start notes up. and go back to sleep. And then I'd look in the morning, you'd see all those notes scribbled down and go, I do not remember any of that. <laughs> but it worked I, well. And we were, you know, I'd grown up in my parents' business, but they operated out of home. So customers were coming and going all the time. The employees came to the house first thing in the morning. So it was very much a 24. And if the phone rang at two o'clock with someone saying, my fence has fallen over, you know, there's a school next door, then yep. you, you just didn't care what time it was, you went out and did the business. And I guess yeah. that was a good precursor for me, you know, the lessons learned there, even though you might not think it, they, they translated very well into a 24 by 7 tech business as well. Uh, you were always very strong on customer service and the first person I ever heard talk about this thing called MPS and Net Promoter Score was yourself. Um, we, we were the first ones to embrace it in Australia. Hmm. Yeah, and again, afterwards, I believe Westpac was the first major corporate then that started using it. But certainly, INET, we became, like with the internet itself, we became evangelists for NPS once it started coming out. And, you know, we were able to prove the link. I'm still a mathematician at heart, but that link from, um, you know, from NPS, uh, customer's satisfaction to churn, um, and yep. then from churn to um, profitability was huge. And, you know, getting that to the board, it became that thing of, you know, we all believe in our heart that if you provide good service, then it's good business. Yep. But being able to see those numbers that, you know, if, if customers tell you they're going to leave, guess what? They leave, okay? So they're telling you in advance before they leave here with the NPS surveys. So take take notice of that. But then um, churn levels versus sales. I think a lot of a lot of companies get into this um, cycle of thinking, well, you know, we're not growing anymore. We need to get more sales. And they end up pouring huge amounts of customers in the top of the bucket and watching them go out the bottom. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, and then when you say, oh, we're not growing anymore, the temptation is to put more money into sales and marketing. And it's it's and one of the reasons for that is it's it's a very short lever. You can put the sales in today and you'll see new money into marketing today and you'll see new sales next month. Whereas churn's a very long lever. Improving all your systems, all your service levels to t- start reducing churn takes years. Yes. Um, but the payback on it is, you know, we were about two hundred times financially, we were about two hundred times more sensitive to churn than we were to sales. So you know, getting churn down by 0.1 percent would would equate to about increasing sales by about twenty percent. And I think you remunerated everybody, including yourself, on MPS score. And every INET employee knew their MPS score to like the third decimal point. Yeah, for call centre staff, that was their own specific NPS score. You're quite right. But um, for other staff that were not frontline, like, say, the finance team, mm. um, they were remunerated as well. About half their bonus was based on the company's NPS. And you right. say, well, what, what do accountants have to do with service? Well, for instance, the accountants were writing those policies about um, credit collection. So if they're going to be make it really tough for customers, and the temptation again in business is um, to set your, one customer rips you off. 
So because of that 1% of people that have done the wrong thing, you'll change your policies, then affect the other 99%. Yeah. And you know, then so that ends up having a very harsh impact on people that are otherwise happy to keep paying you. So yes. I guess so even the finance people could have a very direct impact on how on customers' perception of the business. So yeah, everywhere. And engineering more obvious. If the network's going down all the time, then customers get angry. So just making sure that everyone was connected to the front line. Yeah. And how long until, going back to the beginning, did you actually take on an employee and say, okay, well, I'm now in this full time. I'm now going to actually have to hire staff to this growing rocket ship that I've created. Uh, the first paid employee was a guy called Justin that I'm still consider a close friend, but um, he came to us. Um, so it's funny, he, he was a customer. He really thought this internet thing was a big deal. So he came to us and says he'd take a 50% pay cut and leave his own job because he wanted to be part of this. And um, right. that was, we, we were not looking to hire anyone, but it was a case of, well, right. this guy is a you know, high quality asset and, and he's saying he'll come to us at half price, let's take the punt. And of course he, he did. He ended up being with us for a long time. And was there when the IPO happened as well. And so that's what, 94, 5-ish? It would have been, it must have been um, mid, early 95, maybe even before that, that he yeah. he joined the, as a paid member of the staff. And, and then, it was two and a half years, so for me and Michael, before we took any pay out of the company. Right. 20 years journey, um, you had quite amazing, and it's very difficult to cover, you know, 20 years and a few minutes, but there's a few seminal moments I think I want to talk about um, one was obviously battles with Telstra, um, and uh, which you famously won. Also battles with, of all things, Hollywood Studios, which you also won. Happy to take either of those that you want to talk about, but I think they're really interesting um, where you, you've described them as like I, I rolled up my sleeves and I got in there and really fought for the company in both, um, in both cases. I'll, I'll pretty much dismiss the one about Telstra because it's, it's, we're a networked industry. So mm. everyone has to connect everyone else. You know, at the time, if Telstra had just said, we don't want to do business with Optus, then Optus has no has no business because Telstra had all the customers. So if right. Optus customers can't call Telstra customers, then there is no telecommunications industry. So, of course, Telstra resisted. Unless they were compelled to do things, um, of course they resist. That's good business for them. But, right. yeah, over time, the, the regulator and the government wanted there to be a, a vibrant telecommunications industry. So bit by bit we did. And I think, by the way, I think we probably had a sense at the time that we were feeding on the carcass of a dying incumbent, whereas right. you look at it in, in retrospect now, Telstra was very rational in their behaviour. Um, if someone's in there, a nimble competitor is moving along and winning market share, you don't drop your, don't drop your prices on your entire customer base to meet someone when they've only got a half percent market share. Right. So Telstra's behaviour was very rational. I'm sure they had a, a lot of very clever people churning away the numbers, mm. but and resisting us wanting to get access. But right. So I, I don't, I've never found any difficulty with that. Even even at the time, I think we all knew Telstra's acting in Telstra's best interests. Right. Um, yeah. The studios was more interesting because it was a global battle. Um, yes. So yeah, you're right. Thirty four Hollywood studios. Um, they used Village Roadshow domestically because they wanted an Australian name at the front rather than Fox or MGM or, or Disney. Um, so, but you know, but it was a, it was a consortium of thirty four global studios, and um, they picked Australia because they, well, what they were trying to do is allege that um, INET, the internet service provider, was um, responsible in some way for the behaviour of its customers. So illegal downloads of movies and things like that. Yeah, this right. wasn't without precedent in Australia. For instance, blank tapes, um, the manufacturers of blank tapes lost their battle back in the eighties, and um, all blank tapes after that, there was a, a tax on them effectively. 
which was um, if, if you used a blank tape to pirate, then um, the, the, the studio's got some money, the rights holder's got some money out of it. So they were trying to make it, this is a very, from their point of view, a very efficient way to manage this would be if ISPs were collecting penalties on right. behalf of studios. Right. right. Um, yeah, ultimately, you're quite right. Ultimately, the courts found against that. But it was no accident. They picked Ironet because our customers were more likely to download movies than Telstra. That the rights holders had previously gone after Telstra, for instance, with music. APRA had gone after um, Aussie Mail and Telstra. So they didn't go after INIC because we were small. They went right. after us because our customers, given the quotas, ourselves, Internode, maybe Optus were more like, and TPG at the time, were more likely to download. Um, but they were hoping that like a test case looking around the world, we'll pick on INIC in Australia, we'll, then we win that case and we can use that to go after Telstra and the rest of them around the world. Yeah, and, and like I said, they would have preferred to go after Telstra in Australia. But Telstra customers with Big Pond at the time, tiny quotas, no one who wanted to download a movie would be a Big Pond customer at the right. time. So right. um, so INET became the brunt of it. But, yeah, th- their first choice was not INET. Their first choice was Australia. Australia has the oldest copyright law and the oldest copyright act in the world. It's a, you know, it's a part of the Commonwealth. So all the mm. other countries like the UK, New Zealand, South Africa, Canada have very similar um, copyright structures. So if they won here, they could then take that to the other Commonwealth countries and use this right. as a as a precedent. And how did you win that case? What was the argument that sort of convinced the judges that uh, to throw out the case? But it was it was complex, but but right. fundamentally it came down to that. Um, where the, the starting point was the information the studios were sending us was allegations. They didn't provide us with any proof that a customer had done anything. They sent right. us across something saying that look, we're alleging that this IP address downloaded this movie at this time. Now, we had no way of verifying this, and, of course, their, their information was rife with errors. But even if we did that, there was no way. So only, only INET could match that IP address with that time and then work out whose account that was. But even then, we didn't know which person in the household it was. Um, and, yeah, there's some famous allegations where it turned out to be a fridge that was being alleged to have done that. <laughs> Classic. You know, and it's just er- errors in the collection Classic. process. But, right. but it could be someone using your Wi-Fi. It could be someone visiting your house. Um, so anyway, it really came down to that. That for us, that was the the principal. There were some complex legal arguments, but the principal around here was that the the data they were collecting didn't amount to a direct link between the activity being done and and the alleged and the alleged behaviour. But but right. also that um, INET was not responsible for what the customers were doing. Right. We were not directly responsible for what our customers right. were doing. So they did have other options available. And, we, and the only um, penalty we could do ultimately, we couldn't stop the customers doing this. There's no possible way for us to do right. it to see what you're doing. But mm-hmm. um, the only only actual stick that we had was to cut you off. And, right. and you know, that was probably fundamental. The court ruled that in a world where internet's required for access to government services, that that was you know, not, a, not an appropriate penalty right. to apply I to I think I you might described it as blaming the people that built the roads for all the car crashes. And there were a lot of allegories like that. But, again, you know, the, the, pre, the previous case on this was photocopiers in universities. University, the University of New South Wales was held liable for students using their, um, their photocopiers to copy okay. books. And so that was the Morehouse and New South Wales, University of New South Wales. That was the only preceding case from the 70s. Mm. So it's not it, – again, it wasn't – some of this stuff, as you say, we can draw lots of, you know, blaming us for the – why not blame the power company instead of blaming the ISP? You could always talk about these sorts of things, but um, it's not as yeah. quite as black and white as I thought it was <laughs> Right. <laughs> once you started doing the arguments. But as I, said, I think the, f- the fundamental was down to you're just talking about allegations, and if we acted on those allegations, we'd be cutting people off from an essential service. Right, and it was an important win. It was an important win for the industry and probably, you know, globally it was an important win, right? 
And we, we won it in the federal court, then in the appeals court, then in the high court, but right. without naming the judge. There was one judge in the appeals court that um, found against us. So out of the three people there, but one, one judge said, no, I agree with the studios. So I remember wow. one more person saying that and we would have lost. <laughs> right, okay. Um, but it was unanimous in the high court. So over the 20 years, you look back on it, obviously immense, immensely proud. You created this billion-dollar valuation company um, and you stayed in Perth. I mean, you obviously had offices around, but there, there on Hay Street in Subiaco was the Ironet building here to this day, still there to this day. Uh, I walked past it. Um, any other recollections or learnings along the way that you'd like to share? Opening in Cape Town, I'd always put down as one of the most amazing right. things we did because every other site we opened in, was we did it through acquisitions. So we got our foundation in Auckland and in Sydney through buying um, iHug. Um, yep. but, but, you know, Cape Town was the first one we went to and said, we've looked all around the world. We want another place to be able to open, and we opened there. And, um, you know, it was cheaper labour costs at the time, but um, the, the main thing was the time zones. We figured that was going to be maintainable right. even over decades, even if labour costs went up. Um, so then we had Auckland, Sydney, Perth, Cape Town. And, you know, by the, and it's pretty special when you're sitting down there with an 18-year-old kid. Who, you know, we were paying six times the average national income. Um, pop, um, unemployment at the time was about 50% for youth unemployment, um, English-speaking in the Western Cape region. But, you know, sitting next to an 18-year-old kid who says that he's going to be here and he's going to be able to buy his mum her first house. And, right. you know, think, wow, you know, this is not Australia, you know. And yeah. And how many staff did it did it get to in the end? What that, that it's we were over a thousand when I left in Cape right. Town. Yeah, amazing. So a, a fantastic journey and and well done from really a maths teacher wanting internet connection. Quite an incredible journey. There aren't many tech companies in Perth you can point to, you know, and say, "Wow, that's a billion dollar company created from nothing." Um, we'll see so what Canva does, hey. Indeed. Do we, do we still count them as Perth? I suppose we should. We could. Of course um, we will, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, just jumping in here to give a shout out to our wonderful sponsors. Without these, we would not be able to bring you this podcast or do what we do at Startup News either. So we want to thank Startup News who produced the Startup West podcast. Go there and subscribe, please. Spacecube Coworking Spaces, where we also record this pod down here at Riff in the city. The New Industries Fund, who give funding, advice, and support all year round. Curtin University, who have been a long-time supporter of innovation entrepreneurs in WA. The City of Perth, where we also record this pod, also a great supporter of the tech scene. RSM, who came on board last year, and who helped many startups with R&D tax returns and other advice. Dinner Twist, a WA startup itself, who has actually been on the podcast and just wanted to help out. So please, if you bump into any of these organizations and the people that run them, say thanks and go use their services. That's the best way to say thanks. Okay, now back to the show. I want to take you back now through your career, um, just briefly if we can. Uh, born in Ireland? Born in County Clare. What age did you come to Perth or did you go somewhere else first or what, what was that move? We actually came, weirdly enough, to Queensland first. We came to a little town called Mount Morgan here. My dad was working in a, a coal mine up there. Right. Um, but then, yeah, we, my brother got asthma very badly, so we moved to Perth. And what year? So, what year was that? In the well, we came in ninety um, in seventy three, seventy four first. But um, like a lot of Irish and English, um, we were hungry. For, you know, missed our families a lot, so we actually moved back to Ireland again. Right. So it was nineteen seventy eight when we came out and stayed in Australia, then to Perth. To Perth, okay. And was your dad uh, doing fences then? He'd quit the coal mining because there's not much coal mining in WA. I think there's one. 
Yeah. He was driving he was driving furniture truck before we went back. But no, when we got back from Ireland then, so 1978, um, right. him and him and mum set up the um the, the fencing. I mean, I, I don't want to yeah. it was very much the pair of them, and I mean that literally. So mum was on right. the shovel along beside dad, and the three kids were out there with him because they we didn't have any family in Australia. So if right. the kids were not at school, then they were on the building site. And so I think right. that was one of the things that probably made us a memorable business because you know we operated out of home and literally mum was in the trench with dad putting the sheets in and right. <laughs> as were you we were there beside them doing this yeah. and so brothers sisters you've got older brother i've got two younger brothers two younger brothers right and so they're all in it as well and then at school uh, obviously sounds like you if you don't mind me saying quite geeky you're a bit of a mathematician it sounds like you're doing a maths degree so was it maths and sciences what what Things you drawn to at school. Thank you for that lead. Um, <laughs> all, all the way through, funny enough, I wanted to be a writer. So my top subjects were mm. English, English literature. I won the Young Writers Competition a couple of times in Western Australia. That's very different. That's not what I expect at all. But it was in year 11 I got a teacher, Brother Kelly, and I had some amazing teachers. But I had one teacher, Brother Kelly, um, who was the maths teacher. He'd come out of retirement. He was in his 70s. And right. because we didn't have a teacher, he came out of retirement and took us through to year 12. And um, right. honestly changed my life. So um, he only passed away there just over a year ago. Um, he right. was three months short of 100. Um, <laughs> and so I was fortunate to be able to stay in touch with so him. So Brother Kelly, it must have been a Catholic school. It was Christian Brothers College in Christian Leadville. Christian Brothers so, College. So we've, we've actually established a, a, um, a scholarship in his name for Fantastic. 11 and 12 students at, at our, what's now called Aaron Moore. And when you were at school, did you have an idea of what you were going to do when you grow up, as they say? Had- no, of course not. I still don't. <laughs> no, I was, and you know, I was very much no. You're right. I went on even at university. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I kept changing my major, so I did linguistics, anthropology, psychology, computer science. Uh, moved into law at one point, um, and you know, really had no idea. Maths was always the theme, but I wasn't very good at it. So I loved right. it, but I wasn't that good at it. Right. Whereas, um, yeah, computer science, I, I was really good at, but I didn't particularly like. And so. Off to university, UWA to do a maths degree. Is that right? Yes. And then with nothing, I suppose I was the same. I did economics and so I thought, okay, I'll teach economics. Were you the same? I'm, I'm really math, so I'll teach maths? Well, it was finishing up. My, my, I majored. I didn't really enjoy applied maths and I was no good at statistics. So I, I majored in pure maths and mm. it's wonderful. I love it. I still do, but you can't do anything with it. So mm. it was... <laughs> Not in, not in Perth anyway. So, mm. yeah, I went and did teaching because it was the really the only step next. I was not good enough to go on to do postgrad. Right. And different sort of question now, um, what do you consider about the sort of startup scene in Australia and particularly in Perth, WA? You must see the, you know, Steve Baxter over in Brisbane and what's going on in Sydney and Victoria. How would you classify the sort of startup tech scene in West Australia, in Perth, compared to the other places in Australia, how is it different, or what does it what does it lack? It, I think Sydney's now probably got a fairly, you know, well integrated startup support. So from yeah. you know from very small businesses all the way through to get raising significant amounts of capital. And again, you're seeing a lot more companies now choosing to raise their capital within Australia rather than rush off to Silicon Valley, yeah. which is fantastic. Um, you know, in every city, I think there is some like Melbourne, Brisbane. Um, Sydney, I, I don't see that we've got that fully integrated structure in WA, and, yeah. and nor do we have a sort of vibrant centre where startups can go. You know, like you've got Paddington, um, Potts Point, 
um, Surrey Hills uh, and, and the surrounding areas in Sydney, which are, you know, if you if you go and open your doors in there, not only is there a bunch of other startups nearby, but there's a bunch of funding companies as well nearby. Right. Um, so I don't, you know, Tech Park, I think, has tried consistently to try and contribute to that, but probably hasn't got there, which is a shame because there's a lot of, Perth has the highest percentage of the population working in small business in the country. Right. Mm. So and and so it's it's got a very vibrant, um, innovation friendly culture mm. as a general. And fairly thing. wealthy too, and that's a lot of say, disposable lot of income floating around. You're, you're seeing, for instance, now both you know Chairman Stokes <laughs> from yep. Seven Ways, but also um, Andrew Forrest, uh, more recently getting involved in in tech companies very openly. So there's yep. money out there as well. Yep. Um, we don't have the fund managers that Sydney and Melbourne have got. Uh, which means I don't think then, because you need those for follow-on funds, um, whereas we, we don't tend to have a lot of that in Perth. seems like we're always on the cusp of getting traction. Yeah. And it's it's so easy then to move east. Yeah. As, of course, Canva did. I, I'm sort of, I've been here 20, 24 years uh, in the startup scene, I've seen it develop. There was no co-working spaces or angel groups or accelerators when we started back in the 90s, a few years after you started Ironet. And when I first came across you, of course, um, but over here, it's sort of frustrating. The money, I think there's a will. I think people with money would like to invest in tech. Maybe they've done a bit and got their hands burnt. Um, maybe something went to the ASX too early and then sort of futtered out. But um, I don't know how to sort of meet the money with the opportunities and, and get that happening a bit more. Yeah, this doesn't just apply to the tech industry as well. Like I said, with the fund managers, so large investment organisations, that would institutional investors that would support mm. listing companies, we, we've had yeah. very few of them in Western Australia. Um, I can only think a, a handful, you know, less than five off the top of my head. Yeah. So whereas, you know, there's hundreds over in Sydney, Melbourne, and quite right. a few in Brisbane. But um, so it's, it's, it is that strange thing. The money is there, but for some reason it tends to drift east. Yeah. Um, so you mean like the venture, ideas like real VC there. firms, you mean? Yeah. 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 VCs and, and later stage investors. I think I saw a stat recently that, W only has about one or one and a half percent of Australia's venture industry. So there you go. Right. About 10% yeah. of the population. But. Right. And about 15% in the economy. So we're woefully underfunded in that respect. Yeah. Um, look, Michael, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. I hope you get over to WA. I know we're very strict over here, but I hope you can get over here. How often do you in the best of times, try and get here. I still own my home in in Western Australia, and all, all my family are there. So, you know, yeah. normally I'd be using, normally I'd be aiming to be in Perth for um, over half my time, and only travel for business. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's just been tough over the last year. All right, so about half the time you're normally here. Yeah, I've visited every every state capital in Australia at least once this year. So, in, in New Zealand twice, I've been across there twice. But um, so I've been very fortunate to have avoided lockdown since January. I've, Got caught in January and twice last year, but um, right, yeah. But either way, I'm coming home next month. I'm going to be home for Christmas, no matter what, even if that means another fourteen days in in quarantine. So. Well, I hope we I hope we bump into each other. And thank you very much uh, for sharing the story again uh, with us. But for the first time here on Startup West, thank you very much, Michael. All the best Thanks, for the John. future, mate. Okay, take care. Bye. And that was Michael Malone. Thanks, Michael, for being on Startup West. I want to wish you all the best for the future. Everything you do. Thanks to our sponsors. The Startup West podcast is produced by Startup News and is made possible by the support from Spacecube Coworking Spaces, the New Industries Fund from Jitsi, Curtin University, the City of Perth, RSM, and Dinner Twist. 
We recorded this pod at the Riff Podcast Studios in beautiful downtown Perth, Western Australia. Don't forget to subscribe to Startup West on your favorite pod platform so all our latest episodes appear in your feed. Also, go to startupwest.com.au. They're all there as well. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you.